Any thoughtful preacher stays awake at night from time to time and fears the idea that they will stand before God someday and God will say, where did that come from? (laughs) But today it's easy because every single one of you is in our text this morning. Every single person listening to me at Calvary Baptist of Santa Barbara, those who are viewing online, anyone who could walk through those doors, anyone a hundred years from now if Jesus doesn't come back, and somehow there's still a recording of this message, this message rooted in this text is for you. You are in the words of Scripture this morning. There are promises here for you. There is an application for you in the way you live, the way I live. And therefore, we don't have to try to drum up any relevance. The relevance is built into the Word of God today for others, but also for ourselves. Incredibly personal, incredibly applicable. So to that end and to that goal, open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn there to 1 Corinthians 15. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1222. 1222. 1 Corinthians 15. And if you're new to us or if you've been away, let me just remind you of a context. We are working our way through this New Testament letter of the Apostle Paul to the gathering of Christians in the ancient city of Corinth. And this church was messed up. In fact, there's a meme that's going around these days. It's as though if Paul were writing today, he'd start the letter and he'd say, I just don't know what to do with you guys. And that's kind of the idea of 1 Corinthians. They have all these problems. They have all of these shortcomings. They are called the saints of God. And over and over again, Paul says, you're my beloved. He loves them. But they were a mess. They were a mess. And what we found over and over again is that part of their mess, a a root of their problems, was that they were so enamored with the culture around them, what we sometimes call the prevailing culture. They were so impressed with society. They they were so desirous to be accepted. They, They were seduced away by the surrounding culture. They were passionate to fit in. They were ashamed to stand out. And therefore, both their living had been compromised And then, it's kind of a chicken and the egg question, but also their doctrine had become compromised. They had compromised their doctrine because of the way they wanted to live. They also had faulty doctrine, and that affected the way they lived. And so it was a vicious cycle. Compromised doctrine and compromised living. And so by the time we get to what we call chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a doctrinal error that they had adopted because it helped them fit in with the culture at large. And this is hard for us to relate to because, generally speaking, there's not a a primary philosophical bent in our culture about the kinds of things that were driving the Corinthians. But in the Corinthian culture, in Greece at that time, there was this sense that the idea of a bodily resurrection was ridiculous because the only thing that really mattered was the spirit. The matter was evil, matter was useless, matter didn't have much point. And therefore, there were two approaches to that. Sometimes people would stay away from any physical pleasure because they were afraid of it. Other people said, it doesn't matter what you do with your body because it doesn't matter anyway. And this error specifically applied to how you understood your future as a follower of Jesus. These were ancient people 
But they were pretty intelligent. They knew that nobody lived forever, at least in this world. That's a self-evident truth, right? And therefore, what happens in the future? And the Corinthian believers had bought into the prevailing culture saying, you know, don't worry about that. The idea that your body will come out of the tomb, that's a strange doctrine. You don't have to hold to it. It might have happened with Jesus, some of the church members said, but it doesn't matter for you because right now is all that matters. And this was affecting the way they were living. And what Paul is saying in chapter 15, listen carefully. What he was saying was that without the resurrection of the body, death is all you got. Now think about that for a minute. Without a future resurrection of the body, this is as good as it gets. And death is all you got. Look at the text with me. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll begin reading this morning in verse 35, and we'll read down through verse 49. And I remind you every Sunday, I'll do it again on Reformation Sunday, this is God's word for us today. How glorious that you don't sit there speaking German and I don't read this in Latin. <laughs> How glorious. That, that's, that's what happened in much of history. How glorious it is. God's good gift to us. Reading in his word, chapter 15, verse 35, God's word for us. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there, are, there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Well, the last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And for the Corinthians... And for their neighbors, a body linked with immortality, a body, physical body, linked with immortality did not make sense. That was foolish. And so what the apostle deals with in our text this morning is he deals with, with skepticism about our future bodily resurrection. 
He gives replies to skepticism about our future bodily resurrection. And he notes the skeptical questions back in verse 35. Did you hear them? He says, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You, you get the tenor of these questions. As we'll see in just a moment, these are not necessarily sincere questions. But this is a perspective of the culture that the Corinthians were living in, the, the, the water they swam in. This was the air that they breathed. And it was basically miracles do not happen. Does that sound familiar? Miracles do not happen. Thinking about a body, once again, everyone knew about death. And so what they basically would say was what kind of body would arise from a heap of decomposed rubbish. Now you and I, we hear these. There's a level of legitimacy in those questions. It's the reason we'll look at them. It's the reason Paul really addresses them this morning. But what we find is that these are very contemporary objections, aren't they? We know that this is what people are asking. Maybe some of you ask it, but this is surely what our culture would say. If in the coffee shop this week you acknowledged with them that you believe that your body will one day come out of the tomb, they, they said, well, what kind of body would that look like? It's the same skepticism that the Apostle Peter wrote about in 2 Peter chapter 3. Remember when he said scoffers will come in the last days following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? And here's their rationale. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, in other words, long, long ago, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You're thinking something's going to change? People live, people die, that's the end. And that's the perspective of many people in our world today. This is the contemporary objection to the idea that one day we will live again. And Paul's response to these specific skeptics is found there in verse 36. Do you see it? He says, not very much tact by the Apostle Paul. He says, you foolish person. Now, why does he say that? Because in a sense, I think these are pretty good questions. He says it because they were denying what they'd already been taught. They were forgetting what they already knew. They should have known. They should have remembered all that they embraced in the gospel. You see, these questions were not reflective questions. They were deflective questions. They weren't asking these questions in order to consider what the future was about. They were asking questions in order to do and live the way they wanted to live. So once again, you see that? He uses the term foolish. We've seen it over and over again, haven't we? They, they wanted to deny what's the wisdom of God because the wisdom of God looks foolish to the world around them, and they wanted to adopt the wisdom of the world, which God says, listen, that's where folly is. Paul says, you foolish person, mockers and scoffers. But I'm here to tell you today that even mockers and scoffers ask questions that can find good answers, because that's what he goes on to do. He answers these arguments of these fools. The truth of the matter is, before we're through this morning, you still have unanswered questions. I don't have the answers about the resurrected state that you and I might wish that I had. I wonder about what it will be like that babies are resurrected. I even believe, as we believe, because we have a high view of the sanctity of life, that even uh, infants in their mother's womb will be one day resurrected. 
What does that look like? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. What will family relationships be like? Jesus says there's no marriage or giving in marriage, but still, surely in heaven, in eternity, on the new earth, there'll be some kind of relationship with the people that we loved so deeply. I don't have answers for that. What will this earth look like? It will literally be heaven on earth. We've seen that when we studied Revelation. We forget that so often. Our future in eternity is not out there floating among the stars. It's on this earth recreated to God's glory. And so the question is, what will that look like? I've wondered about technology this week. All of it that is cursed, all that's going to go away. But I wonder how much technology will still exist in the eternal world, in the new heavens. I don't know. I don't have answers to that. Part of this is the challenge of, of trying to shove the infinite into our finite categories. It just doesn't work. And that's part of the challenge of the Bible, because even here, Paul uses an analogy that scientists tell me it's not precisely accurate as far as science is concerned. Of course, the appearance, everyone assumes you'll see it in just a moment, the seed dies, but there's still life in the seed. But the point is, analogies only go so far. They're helpful. They flesh out truth, but you'll leave this morning with plenty of questions, unfortunately. But still this text addresses very helpful questions and gives us answers. What will all this look like, and how will this happen? So let me show you what I find in this text, beginning again in verse 36. Regarding our resurrection bodies, the first thing I see here is the how. The how of our resurrection bodies. And the how is the power of God's creation. The power that resides in God who is the creator. Essentially what Paul goes on to say is he says, relax, all of this is God's problem. He's the one that will bring it about. Notice what he says in the middle of verse 36. He uses an analogy from nature. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's talking about a seed. Jesus used this language in John 12, remember? Jesus said, unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. So this is a common analogy. It, it's used, by the way, by other philosophers in the ancient world. What you sow is not the body. You don't put a full plant in the ground. You just put a seed. And what happens? A plant comes forth. And that transformation is designed by God in his power. That's how nature works. Verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen. We sow seeds, generally speaking, not necessarily plants. And yet look what happens. There's an unexpected transformation. What springs to life is so much more than what dies. And it seems like it comes out of almost nothing. The problem in this, as we read it, is we've become so familiar, and even though in our technological culture we're far removed from sowing and reaping, the reality is even still we, we take it all for granted. People who live very close to the earth, perhaps they owned this analogy a little more personally. But we, we forget how astonishing it is that out there in the courtyard where we're doing some uh, unending digging, by the way, around here, as you can see, and, and we flattened out the courtyard, and there's, there's a place where there's either a water leak or they consistently wash off their tools, and you know what's happening? Grass is growing. Where did that come from? 
It, it's everywhere, right? Because this is the power of God that he has designed into creation. And Paul's argument is, if that's how great your God is, he can also handle whatever the problems will be in the future about your physical body who, that is made. God's got this. As in Genesis 1, he brought all of this about by his spoken word. That's how powerful God is. He spoke it, and it came into being. You think he'll have problems with a resurrected body? This is God's creative power. It's such that he can take similar material that he originally created, and he can organize it how he desires in order to accomplish his purposes. And that's what we're going to see before we're through. So what this text is telling us with this analogy of the seed and the plant is that there is, on the one hand, in our resurrected bodies, there is continuity. In other words, it will truly be us. But on another sense, there is discontinuity. Our text next week, if you, if you take your eyes and jump down to verse 50, where we'll begin next Sunday, it says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The flesh and blood is not going to live eternally. So there's, there's some discontinuity, but there's also, he says it, he says the seed becomes a plant. There is a different manifestation, but it's still the same life. There's continuity and discontinuity. And perhaps we might not think of it in terms of a reconstruction, but rather there's a sense in which it's a recreation. Still, the prototype is Jesus. He's called in verse 20, remember from a couple of weeks ago, the first fruits? And the first fruits is a demonstration of everything that will come after. And this is Jesus' resurrection, and our resurrection is linked to that. And so, for example, we read in Romans 8, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the power of God's creation. Now listen very carefully. The reasoning here is this. What Paul is saying is, if this, then that. If God is able to do this, then God is surely able to do that. Your God has enough power to bring about your future bodily resurrection. And if that's true, your God has enough power to accomplish in you what he has planned today. If it's true that God has eternity in hand by his infinite power, he can handle your heartache. He can handle your fears. He can handle the maze that you find yourself in of trying to navigate the complexities of this life. How powerful is your God? Do you have an impotent God who, who only can do things maybe in eternity, but he, his hands are tied right now? You see, the power of God's creation is not just in creation past, and it's not just in the recreation in the future, but it's in your life right now. God's power is at work. And when we disbelieve this, when we doubt it, we adopt an attitude of unbelief that's not that drastically different from the Corinthians. So is God really at work? Does he really have a purpose? Is he really doing something in my life? It reminds me of the title of the book that came out almost a generation ago, When Man is Big and God is Small. I think that describes our attitude sometimes. That God is not able to do what he needs to do in my life, what he wants to do in my life, what I pray that he will do in my life. 
But the Bible has the opposite message. So this truth is not just for after you die, although it is glorious and it is truly for that, but the principle applies today. Paul said it this way in Philippians 1. He said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he began the work, he is working, and he will bring it about in completion. The power in God's creation. That's the how. But what about the why? Why will it be this way? Well, beginning in verse 38, at the end of the verse, we see this, and, and it's a somewhat of an of a obtuse or a complicated argument, but basically what Paul seems to be saying is this. There's an appropriateness to all of God's design. There's an appropriateness to our physical lives now, but there will also then be an appropriateness to the way our resurrected bodies will be designed, recreated in the future. In all of it, God's design is in play. And there are different kinds of bodies, is basically what these verses say. And you ask, well, what's the point of that? The point is, God's design is appropriate for this world, and it's also, therefore, appropriate for the world to come, for the eternal age. Notice what he says. We'll pick it up in verse number 38, the middle of the verse. He says, and to each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars, for star differs from star in glory. By the way, he didn't have a telescope, and yet Paul recognized that. And what is his point? His point is there's an appropriateness in God's design. Again in Genesis 1, this is the unlimited power of God in creation, and it's seen in His diverse design. And so we can see it, we see it originally, if you go read Genesis 1-3, through 3, you see it originally in paradise, but you also see it right now today, if you want to go down to the seashore, if you want to go up into the mountains, you will see this glorious creativity, this amazing diversity, and this unspeakable beauty. And I want to tell you folks, if, if you live on the plains of Texas, you don't get to see this. <laughs> but we live with it every single day. And what this text is implying is that God is going about in creation, He's going about putting His glory on display, and He does it in all kinds of different ways, all kinds of different bodies, all kinds of different circumstances, but all of it is appropriate to His design. And the implication is this, that we are all created to be glory reflectors. We're all created to be glory reflectors. That's the reason God put us here. That was his purpose in the garden, and Satan in the fall tried to ruin that. And it looked like he had done so. And God basically is never surprised. Amen? And he accomplishes his purpose to still display his glory, even through flawed and broken people. We're still glory reflectors. Paul's already used this language in 1 Corinthians 11, where he talks about how man is the glory of God and woman, his wife, is the glory of the man, that that's the way he built creation. Everything is appropriate to its design. 
That's the reason it's dangerous to push against God's design. That's the reason it's dangerous to assume that you know better than God's design. And the point of resurrected bodies is that as difficult it is for us to imagine in our technologically, scientifically sophisticated age, this is what this text is implying, that God will properly fit our resurrected bodies for eternity in the same way that He has appropriately designed our bodies right now. This is the appropriateness of God's design. And can I just show you how this applies to today as well as eternity? Accepting your good God's good design at this time as precisely appropriate for you. Because he wants to put his glory on display. I have all kinds of opinions about how God could have better designed me. And the sad thing is, my list differs from my wife's list about me. So we get all of our family together. And, you know, there's always comments about our lack of stature. Let's just put it that way. Some of us seem to have a metabolism where we, we literally can eat as much pizza as we want. Others, Bruce, not so much. But the reality is, while we acknowledge the fallenness, and and this is a factor in all of it, there's a fallenness and there's a weakness and there's a sin factor. We'll get to that in a moment. But still, you think God was out of control when he put you together? Do you think God's sovereign design just took a furlough when you were conceived? What that means is not resignation for who you are, but acceptance, and more than acceptance, of thinking through, and of course, the idea of stature is practically meaningless to us today, but things like our bent and our our approach to problems and the way we think through issues, all of this is the complexity of how God has put us together. And we all have a list that we think, well, we wish God had done this, and we wish God had done and given us a different family, and given us different circumstances. And this text implies God knows what he's doing. And we're all to be glory reflectors. And is it possible that you might have come from a better family, but perhaps you wouldn't have as much potential to reflect God's glory as you do now? Is it possible that you wish you had grown up at a good Bible teaching church and you didn't and you feel like those years were wasted, but is it possible that God in this mystery of his providence that God's design was precisely what it needed to be for you so that you could now reflect his glory and appreciate that glory. Don't believe that the appropriateness of God's creation happened in Genesis 1 and 2 and then doesn't start again until the end of Revelation. It's happening right now. Even in your challenges and in your losses and in your deficiencies, and I do not in any way denigrate or look down or dismiss any of those heartaches that you live with. I'm saying that God is still in control and that God has designed your life in such a way, if He's truly God, 
He has designed your life in such a way that through your heartache and your loss and your disappointment that you can give Him glory. The appropriateness of God's design. That's the why of the resurrection body. But now look at the what of the resurrection body. And I'll show you before we're through why I say this, but I think the what is rooted in the wonder in God's grace. The wonder in God's grace. Look at verses 42 through 45. And there's wonder here because the wonder is this is what he will do for each of us and none of us deserve it. We are each ruined, rebellious sinners. None of us better than the others in the sense of God's eternal plan and God's holiness. And yet God in His kindness to those who are His own, God in His kindness has given us His grace. And this is what He will do for rebels. Be very careful before I read the text. Do not read this as this is what God does for good people. Because there are no good people. This is what God does for His own people who are rebels that by His grace He has saved. Now with that in mind, look at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. In other words, sickness, death. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, that is sin and shame, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. Likely that's a temptation to sin and to failure. But it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body in the sense that the body is limited in time and space. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is the what. The what is, listen very carefully, the what is a body that is imperishable yet utterly real. It, it is imperishable. It will never pass away. It will never decay. It will never grow old. It will never be sick. But it is not some kind of ethereal ghost existence. It is a real existence. A body glorified for eternal life. Appropriate, as we just saw. Appropriate. A different kind of body not the kind of body that is appropriate for here, but a kind of body that is appropriate for eternity, for eternal life. You know, there are, in history, there are some rabbinic ideas that, that bodies would be raised, but they would be raised in the same condition in which they died. They even used an illustration if someone died and they were maimed, like in a battle, that's the way they would be raised. I'll tell you, that's not much hope for me. But this description is a body which is imperishable and which is, which is in glory and, and which is powerful and which is spiritual. But a spiritual body, we always have to remind ourselves of this, a spiritual body does not mean a ghostly, ethereal body. It's rather, instead of a natural origin and orientation, our future bodies will have a supernatural, spiritual origin and orientation. It's a Jesus sort of body. It's the kind of body that Jesus came out of the grave in. It's appropriate for heavenly life on a renewed, perfected, recreated earth. And the Bible promises this, doesn't it? For example, 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. That's what we'll be like. Like Jesus in His resurrection. In Philippians chapter 3, this is addressed. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we really belong. And from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what He will do. Who will transform our lowly body... You get the point. Our perishable, our shameful, our weak, our natural body. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is the wonder of it all. That this is what God will do for sinners, for rebels. Your resurrection body will be different, but it will be real. And listen carefully, it will still be you. Each of us individually forgiven by Jesus Christ. And what's the ground of all of this? What, where does all of this come from? It's this gracious promise of the gospel. Look back in your text. Look at verse 45. This is implied here. You might miss it, but let me show it to you. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And Paul sets up a, a dichotomy here. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either in the first Adam or you're in the last Adam or the second Adam. He uses this language in more detail in Romans 5. If you're interested in this, I'd encourage you to look at that later today. But you're either in Adam, and in Adam you have everything that Adam has left you. And what has he left you? Well, look in the mirror tomorrow morning. Look at your medical reports from your last doctor visit. Go by and look at the cemetery. That's what Adam has left us. That's his legacy. And all of us are in Adam in our sin. But the wonder of the gospel is that God, and I'm not sure how literal I want this to sound, but this is not pretend. God takes us out of Adam and he puts us into Christ so that now we're in Christ. Even though we're rebels and, and we don't deserve, and if the truth were known without the drawing of the Holy Spirit, we would fight him. We would want to stay in Adam, in our rebellion. But in the grace of God and the gospel, he takes us out of Adam and he puts us into Christ. And this is the ground of our future resurrection promise the wonder of the gospel the good news of the gospel Adam's legacy is death but the last Adam's legacy is life is forgiveness is eternity is heaven on earth and this is the wonder of gospel truth in your sin you're an Adam but in Christ you are forgiven and there's this glorious truth I can't unpack it today. It's a glorious theological reality that if you are a Jesus follower, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, you are one with Jesus. And God can no more reject you than he will ever reject his son. How glorious is that? And therefore, he won't leave your body in the tomb. One day, when he's ready to fix everything that's broken about this world. And when I say everything, I mean everything that's broken about this world 
he will not leave out the body of my mom and dad who lie under the dirt in Greenwood, Indiana right now. Mom being there for 35 years, who knows what state her body is in. But you see, God's got that. And in the same way that he's going to fix everything else, those caskets will be empty someday. And through the power with which he put everything in existence, by his grace, not because they earned it, because I guarantee you they didn't, neither will you and neither will I. But for those of us who are in Christ, who are forgiven, there is this promise of fulfillment here, yes, and joy here, yes, and the glory of God here, yes, but that's not enough. And some of you who remember what it's like to stand by the graveside of someone you love, you know that's not enough. But his promises in the gospel, there will be a resurrection to eternal life. The last text seems to have to do with the timing that God does all of this. And what I find here is an emphasis on the providence of God in this timing. Look at it in verse 46. The, this is the when, and the when is left as it always is. It's left to the providence of God. It's God's timing. Verse 46, notice the order. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Evidently, some of the Corinthians were saying, you know, all that matters, I've got the spiritual relationship with God, and I'm in the church, and and I believe Jesus and everything, and so spiritually, that's all that matters. And Paul says, you're getting this out of order. There's a sense in which there's still a natural world, but there's a spiritual promise that's even greater that's to come. And yes, the spiritual fruit of it we experience now, but the fullness of it won't be till later. And so he describes this. He says in 47, he says, the first man, Adam, was from the earth. He was earthy. The, a man of dust is the idea. The second man is from heaven. This is Jesus incarnated as the Son of God. Verse 48, as was this, the man of dust or earthy, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also will be, wait a minute, is that what your Bible says? Will be? It doesn't say that, does it? It says, so also are those who are of heaven. So this eternal life that's after the prototype of Jesus, there's a sense in which even though we're still in these bodies that are appropriate for this world, there's a sense in which we already have this eternal life. We have this promise of what God will do for us. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, all of us have, because we're born of dust, so also we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that is the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The Corinthians had flattened out their eschatology. <laughs> they basically, you know, they, they did this thing about, they, they would say this thing about, oh, you're worried so much about heaven. We're, we care about what's happening now. Has anybody ever told you that? Oh, Christians, you know, you're pie in the sky by and by. Why don't you care about the world around you right now? And what Paul would say is, yes, care about the world around you, but recognize the basis of all of that is what God will do in eternity. There's a timing to it all. There's a, a process. And they were saying the here and now is what really mattered, and they were missing this bigger picture. If we had time, we could go back and read earlier in the chapter, verses 20 through 24, where God lays out his plan of history. There's a plan, and we are in the middle of that plan. 
But this is not the only part that we will participate in because there's this promise of resurrection. Now listen carefully. What this text tells us is that if you have this idealistic view that all that really matters or is important is this life, you may think that's enlightened, and you may think that's noble. You may look down upon Christians of the past who sang songs like, When We All Get to Heaven. You, you may look down on Christians of the past who read their Bibles and they wept and they anticipated being reunited with their loved ones. You may look down on people that have a hope for eternity and eternal life on earth in the new heaven and new earth. And you may look upon people like that with disdain because you think they're wasting their lives and they're not engaged now. But let me tell you what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at it again. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is all that Paul is saying. He's saying, do your duty. Know who you are. Live for Jesus. Enjoy God's good creation. But know that this is not the reason you live. He has designed you and promises to fix you so that you can live eternally. No more battling sin. No more struggling with weakness. No more fearful of disease. What a glorious promise that is. Today's takeaway is simply this. Our ultimate future will be the same but different and so much better. The same people. You will be who you are. If you're a Jesus follower, if your sins are forgiven, you will be who you are. But you will be different, and that difference will be so much better. Did you hear what Martin Luther said this morning? At the end of that quote earlier in the service, he said, based on his confidence in the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus, his last words there were these. Where he is, I shall be also. And that is the hope of the gospel. And that is the answer to skepticism about the future resurrection. God is not done with this world, and that means God's not done with you. Let's pray together. Father, may our hearts be encouraged today. And in being encouraged, may we be strengthened. May we be emboldened to live for you. May we be better equipped and strengthened to fight sin, the sin that's in our own hearts and lives from the flesh that still remains, the temptations and seductions from the world system around us. May we be wise. May we, may we have a perspective upon eternity that informs how we treat our loved ones, how we care for our spouse, how we love our children, how we pray for our grandchildren, how we love our church and serve our church. Lord, we see the Corinthians were so wrapped up in themselves and in temporal things that they'd gotten to the place where they said they didn't even care about eternity. 
Father, give us a perspective that we find here in your word that what we do now matters because of what you promised to do for us eternally. Give us this motivation through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.